If you have a copy of God's Word, feel free to turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. This is part two of uh, looking at these chapters together. So we're going to do some review this week and then hopefully dive deeper into application. Before I read the starting of chapter 4 and start of chapter 5, I just want to remind you of the framework. I know this is repetitious, but I really hope that this will get deep into you so that you might really think about it and understand in ever clearer ways where we're going and how we're looking at things and all that. So remember that the Bible gives us God's story of reality. It is a four-part story, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. This year, we are thinking about the fourth part of that story, which is restoration. Revelation gives us all kinds of details about restoration. So that's in part why we're looking at this book. Second, if you like a one-sentence statement of what the book of Revelation is about, this is going to be it. God always finishes what he starts. So if you want to understand Revelation in one sentence, that's it. God always finishes what he starts. One thing I'll mention that I didn't last week are these four preliminary principles. So if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to have these four principles nailed down. If you don't, then the likelihood of you misunderstanding the book uh, is very, very high. So, and there's a lot of confusion about Revelation, a lot. So these four principles will help nail down and clarify what the book is about. Principle number one, God always finishes what he starts. That's what we looked at together the first four weeks. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2. The way God set up the world in Genesis 1 and 2 is the way that things will end. It'll just be better. What God determined to do in Genesis 1 and 2 will happen. God always finishes what he starts. There's a reason why we haven't been referring to Daniel and Ezekiel and all that stuff. Because those books don't make sense if we don't understand Genesis 1 and 2. And the simple idea is that God always finishes what he starts. Principle number one. Principle number two, we've got to understand time the way God talks about time. So in the New Testament, the last days started in the first century. That means that the book of Revelation does not begin to tell us about the last days. God says that the last days started in the first century with the coming of Jesus. So, the book of Revelation does not begin to tell us about the last days. It is giving us a summary of what happens in the last days, which means it is summarizing what has happened since the coming of Christ and until his return. Three, there are some things we know and some things we don't. This means that we approach the book of Revelation with a humble posture. The book of Revelation is not written for the super smart people that are really good at cracking a code. Revelation is not a code book. It is written for children. It is written for people that have a childlike faith. It is written to communicate in pictures, images. It's not a code book. So when we come to Revelation, there are some things we know and some things we don't. We, we approach the book with humility, 
Fourth and finally, in terms of our preliminary principles, this is a biggie. Jesus did it. He accomplished something. He actually accomplished something through his death and resurrection. Our view of Revelation is always tied to what we think of the cross and the resurrection. So if you don't think that Jesus actually accomplished anything through his death and resurrection, you'll have a tendency to read the book of Revelation and just focus on evil in the world, darkness in the world, and you will give way too much credit to evil and darkness. But if you actually think that Jesus accomplished something through his death and resurrection, that changes everything about Revelation. Because Revelation is just the unfolding of the significance of what Christ has actually done. So those are our preliminary principles. You gotta get those down if you want to understand this book together. So I'm repeating them over and over. All right, a little bit more, then I'll read and dive in. I know this is a long introduction. Again, bear with me. So far, this is where we've been. And this is important because this is part two of chapter four and five. So where have we been so far in the book? So that's the framework around the book. So let's get into the book a little bit. So chapter one tells us that, I'll just do this briefly. I could say a lot more, but I'll do it briefly. Chapter one tells us that this book is written to be a blessing. We can't hear that enough. Most of us grew up in situations in which the book of Revelation uh, is presented as uh, to stir up fear and to try to scare the hell out of you. And that is not God's intention for the book. God's intention for the book is to bless you, to bless us as we hear it read, as we read it, as we follow it. It's meant to be a blessing. Chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters that Jesus writes to the literal churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And those letters were written to communicate things that the church constantly struggles with. We struggle because we're always tempted to forsake our first love. We struggle with the idol of comfort. We struggle with the idol of self-sufficiency. We struggle to believe what's true. It's easy for us to get wrapped up in false teaching. So Jesus says that to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. So that means chapter 4 and 5 are kind of the answer to those struggles that we have. So we struggle with self-sufficiency and uh, the idol of comfort and false teaching and forsaking our first love. What do we do about it? We get 4 and 5. And we're going to dive into this again today. So you're going to hear some repetition, and we're going to go deeper into our second point. Same points as last week. All right, we ready to read now? I know that's a long introduction. Thank you for bearing with me. Listen to this. Revelation 4, Revelation 5, the first few verses of each chapter. Take this in. It's glorious. It's beautiful. This is God's Word. Hope your imaginations are willing to be fired up this morning. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is indeed a gift. Again and again, Lord, help us not to come to worship wanting and desiring to be more self-sufficient. Help us to come to worship, Lord, because we want greater dependence on you, not more dependence on self. Keep us from robbing you of the glory that you deserve in our lives. Convince us again and again that you are good and faithful and that you love us more than what we can imagine and that you've even given us Jesus to show it and prove it. So Spirit, help us to be caught up with the glory of God by fixing our eyes on Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. So the two points that we're looking at this morning are this. Don't just do something, stand there. And don't just stand there, do something. So let's review where we've been. Don't just do something, stand there. Take in this image if you can. Remember the chapter starts out, if you look back at the first part of chapter four, there's a door that's been opened. It's as though John was standing there seeing this open door, wondering whether or not he should go in. And all of a sudden, a voice speaks to him and says, hey, John, come on in. Come on up. I have something I want to show you. So John goes through the open door. And what does he see? He sees a throne. And God is on the throne. And he is pictured for us as the God who is perfectly holy, as a God whose being itself is pure light and holiness and righteousness and goodness. Then we see the rainbow that's around the throne which communicates that God is faithful. He's always been faithful. And if you remember last week, we looked at these concentric circles that are around the throne. There are two of them. One is tight and close to the throne. And it's made up of representatives of all animate objects, of all animate creatures. It's meant to communicate those that are wise and those that are strong and those that are majestic. And it's meant to communicate that everything that God has made is functioning in the way that they are supposed to function such that they are there around the throne praising God and giving him glory because they are functioning like they were made to function. 
The bigger concentric circle is this 24 thrones made up of all of God's people. So you have the Old Testament church with the 12 thrones and the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles in the New Testament such that God's people are represented there in around the throne. So that all of creation and all of God's people are there in front of this glorious being that is not only holy and righteous and pure and faithful, but is absolutely sovereign and good. But then you remember the dilemma, right? As John is there beholding this sight, there is a scroll in the right hand of him who is on the throne. And the question is, who in the world can take this scroll? Who can take this scroll and explain it, open it up, unpack it? Remember, this scroll is representative of God's plans for the world. It's to say, who in the world can know God? How can you know his plans? How can you understand what God is doing in the world? Because a lot of it's mysterious. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of disruption. How can we understand what God is doing and what he intends? Who can open the scroll? Who can take it out of his hand and explain it? Open it up and show it to show us what's going on and what's happening. Well, John weeps because no one can, right? And then a faithful elder comes beside John and says, John, there is one. His name is Jesus. And he looks like a lion and a lamb that was slain. So that John looks back and sees just to the right of the throne itself is this lion. That's a slain lamb that's Jesus. And he realizes that Jesus is the only one that can help us understand who God is and what he wants for the world and what he is doing. It means for us that if we want to know the living God, the God of creation, the only way to do that is through his son, Jesus. It's the only way that we get to the throne is through Jesus. It's the only way we understand God's plans, through Jesus. It's the only way that we understand how our lives are meant to be, through Jesus. And in particular, it's the reality that he actually lived and suffered and died. And he actually, historically, literally, rose from the dead, victorious over death, and then ascended and now is at God's right hand, reigning. Not going to reign in the future. He's already reigning now. He's not going to start reigning in the future. He's just going to continue to reign. He's always been reigning, ruling He's king of the universe. And when you look at this image, the throne room scene, it is beautiful, it is glorious, it is worship. I didn't mention this last week, but we need to cover this briefly. If you go back and read chapter four and five, what you will find is that the songs and the worship build and build and build. So that in chapter 4, around verse 8, you see that worship begins with praising the God who is holy, 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 pure holiness. And then you notice in verse 11 of chapter 4 that something is added to that. We worship God because he's holy and, verse 11 tells us, that we worship God because by him all things were created. 
so that God himself never forgets the four-part story. He never forgets his great power in creating all things from nothing. And creation itself testifies and declares that this God is powerful and good. Then you look in chapter 5, and of course, what's added to this worship is the Christ, who is worthy to take the scroll. So praise is building from the fact that God is holy to the remembrance that he created to the reality that Christ is the one that explains the Father to us and explains redemption to us and explains the reality that he alone can conquer our evil and all evil, our sin and all sin, our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. He's the only one that's worthy. He's the only one that could endure the wrath of God. The only one. And he did it for us. And so we cry out, he's worthy. And then in chapter 5, after verse 9 and 10, you see another explosion of praise in which Jesus is not only worthy because of what he has done, but building on that, he is now king of kings and lord of lords to which everything is bowing down so that Christ is seen for all that he has accomplished and all of creation, all of God's people are worshiping him forever and ever and ever. Beloved, in that moment and even now, all is amen and alleluia. There is rest and there is sight. And we're there, we will see and we will know and we will know and we will praise. And we will praise and we will love. Behold our end, which is no end. That's what's going to happen. That's the reality right now. Take that image in. Meditate on it. Think on it. Pray over it. But don't just stand there. Don't just sit there. We got to do something too, right? And you might be wondering, again, quickly to review, if you receive this and you are in the original audience and you know that you are facing persecution, loss of job, trying to find a job, people that might hunt you down for the reality that you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember we talked about this? If you were in the original audience, wouldn't you receive this from John and think to yourself, John, why are you giving us this image? What relevance does this have to my life? There are people who are trying to persecute me and you're giving me an image of the throne. Why are you doing, John, John, let's get real here about life. John, come on, give, give us a new strategy. Give us something. And John's committed. No, this is what you need. You need this image of this throne. You need this picture that's painted in chapter 4 and 5. You need this imagery to communicate truth. It's one thing to say, Jesus was raised from the dead. It's another thing to see him at the throne. It's one thing to say, Jesus is Lord. It's another thing to see him there with everyone and everything worshiping him. Right? That gets deep down in us. That hooks us to the deepest possible level and fires up our imagination and gives us confidence to live. And John's saying, this is what you need. You need this image deep down affecting you. In other words, 
We'll say it this way. There's one reference point for the entire universe. It's this one, the throne. Right now, there's one reference point for the entire universe, and it's this, these two chapters and the image that they are showing and issuing. One reference point. And John is inviting all of us to live by this one reference point. So that this reference point, the throne, the lion, the lamb that was slain, interprets all of our circumstances, interprets our agendas, interprets our goals, even evaluates where we are emotionally taxed and where we should attach our emotions so that this one image of the throne and the lamb that was slain, the lion, Jesus, is what we plug in the entirety of our lives into so that this unseen reality is what we plug in our reality into is where we plug in all of our experiences and all that we're going through, all of our circumstances, everything, so that what is unseen is the reference point for all of our lives, everything. And you might be wondering, well, tell you what, before we get to that, that means that if that's the one reference point for our lives, then we really need to acknowledge where we get distracted, right? Because it's so easy to get distracted from this one reference point. In other words, like we mentioned last week, who is your enemy? Who have you been acting like is your enemy? Who have you been functioning, this is my enemy, that is my, who are your enemies? Who have you been fighting? Where have you been distracted? What John is saying here with this one reference point really does matter for our everyday lives. And you have every right to say, well, how in the world does this affect my everyday life? Great question. You see, here's the image. Remember, the image is a throne with a slain lamb. That's a lion. In other words, the image is this. The lion is showing absolute confidence. And the lamb is communicating humility. So John is saying this is the image, this is the reference point. Jesus is the one through which you run the entirety of your life so that you look through everything that's going on through the lens of confidence and humility and that those two ideas go together so that we're invited to think about our lives through humility and through confidence. And as this image continues to gain ground in our hearts and our minds, we will be shaped by humility and confidence. Now you see, the hard part is this, is that most of us, if not all of us, try to use things, other things than, than Jesus to make our lives worth living. Instead of thinking about this lion who was slain, who was a slain lamb, instead of thinking about humility and confidence together all the time, we let other things 
shape our lives. And we use other things to make our lives worth living, to make our lives a little bit better, to make us a little bit more comfortable. Let me give you some examples. You know, sex is a wonderful gift from God. God intends it to be used between a man and a woman in marriage alone. And sex is a glorious gift from God. It's a gift of intimacy, the most intimate thing you can imagine, and being known. It is a glorious gift of commitment and two becoming one. A glorious gift. But casual sex or pursuing pornography to try to make life better? Realizing there are times in which our lives are stressful and difficult, but to think, here's my release. I can either have sex casually or fire up the internet. Maybe even thinking to ourselves, things have been so difficult, I deserve this, and it's okay. Beloved, you realize that when we utilize sex outside of marriage the way that God has intended, what ends up happening is that death occurs and shame. So we start looking at people differently. We start objectifying others. We are start thinking about other people in ways that they can satisfy our sexual desires rather than it being something shared between people that are committed to one another in marriage. To just use it as somewhat of a commodity by which this is where I get what I want and then I can walk away as if there is no lasting effect. We will try all kinds of things to make our lives a little better. We'll, we'll, try, we'll try all kinds of things to try to release pressure and tension and difficulty that, are a complete, that, that just leave us messed up, right? Don't all of us know this? None of us are sexually pure. All of us, all of us are defiled. What about, hmm, how about this? A good bottle of wine. For those of you that don't like wine, and, and let me preface this, none of you have to drink alcohol, okay? I just want to use this as another example. A good bottle of wine, a good, for me, a good bottle of bourbon. Maybe it's for you a bottle of scotch. To be used and enjoyed with friends is a gift from God. To enjoy that with friends to enjoy being with them and delighting in that is great. It's good. It is a gift. But a bottle of bourbon to get me through the day, not good. A bottle of wine to get you through the week, not good. At that point, it is not a gift that you're enjoying with people anymore. At that point, it begins to control you, which is bad, right? Your jobs, your career, great way for you to use your gifts to the glory of God and to figure out how to integrate faith in your work. 
how to integrate faith and what you do. It's hard. It's difficult because the gospel so often is very different from the corporate world, right? It's hard. But working for the glory of God and laboring day in and day out, it's a good way to exercise your gifts. And there is there is an aspect of that which brings about some minimal level of security. You work hard, you gain a wage, and you have some level of security, right? It's small. You know that it, you could lose it. But it's a good way to earn something and to have a sense of worth and value. And even, to press that even further, to even provide a very thin and extremely fragile identity, right? If you, build a, if you try to build a really thick identity and a really substantial identity around your job, you will freak out all the time over everything, right? But there's a thin, fragile identity that you can get from your work, and there's a temporary security you can get from your work and recognition from friends and colleagues, all that's good. But if your work becomes ultimate, then your job or your career is going to ask you to sacrifice your family for your job and your career. If your job is ultimate, if your job is ultimate, it will also ask you to sacrifice your health and well-being. Like working yourself to death is a real thing, y'all. Burning out is real. It's real. Being so preoccupied with your job that you sacrifice your family and sacrifice your own health is bad. It's not good. It's not the way you were made. But if your job or your calling or your career become ultimate, it will destroy you. And even more, even more than just hurting your own personal health and asking you to sacrifice your family, you will even be asked to work so much that you can't really commit to your church, to the people of God. Which means you might be tempted to take other jobs and not think about where can you hear the gospel and where can you join with God's people. Because ultimately it's about your job, your career, your money, your security that is incredibly fragile and it will never deliver what you want it to deliver. It won't. We try all kinds of things to make our lives a little bit better rather than running our lives through Jesus and confidence and humility together. And if that doesn't make sense, hang in there. We're going to come back to it. How about this? Those of you that love gaming or being present on social media, those of you that love gaming or just hanging out on social media, you know, whether it's IG or whatever, whatever it is, whatever, whatever your pleasure is on social media, like, look, gaming, gaming is good to kind of have a way of, you know, downtime a little bit, right? Kind of takes your mind off of other things that may be really working you up, that's difficult, that's hard, so you game a little bit to relax. It's good. Maybe on social media you've come to realize that, you know, it's a great way to um, maybe meet new people sometimes, even though it's kind of weird, but it works out and some of you are married because of that. At other times, it's a way that you keep up with friends or family. 
And you understand more about your friends and family because of social media and keeping up with that, right? But, but, if social media becomes or gaming becomes the primary way that you relate to people, if it becomes the primary way by which you are enhancing your relationships or those are your only relationships, my friends, you have entered the black hole of death and anger and fighting and hostility. And I hope that you've done enough research to know that if you research certain things on the internet and use certain social media things, that all the algorithms are there to keep you on the same trajectory such that you're not hearing things that are different from what you're researching and so you only become more and more narrow in what you're hearing and only more and more narrow in what you're reading such that you end up with the temptation of thinking that you are right about everything because all you ever hear is reinforcing your bias. That's the way the algorithms will work. That's the way they're set up. And that is death. It's isolating it's a place of anger and frustration. It's a black hole. And my hunch is you probably sampled that a little bit here and there. We will try all kinds of things to make our lives a little bit better other than running everything we have through Jesus. So this is what I'm saying. This is what John is saying. This is what God is telling us by giving us this image of the throne. Will you, will I, will we together run our life experiences through what we believe and to God's posture toward us every day? Will we let our life experiences connect with what we say we believe? And will we let our life experiences every day drive us to what God thinks of us as we are living our lives? Will we do that? You know, you believe Jesus suffered and died on the cross, right? You believe that, right? I hope you do. But what does that mean for you this week and today? This is what it means. It means that in humility, you know that Christ suffered so that as you approach your life, you might have a humble posture to expect that you might suffer too. And even if you are not called upon to suffer right now in this moment, you can anticipate that you will have hardship and difficulty in life. Jesus said, in the world you will have trouble. He meant it. So to let your experiences drive you to what you believe and what that means, what that means is that we have a humble posture towards life where we expect hardship and difficulty and maybe even suffering. But we can have confidence that as we live our lives, even called upon to suffer, even called upon to face challenging things, difficult things, heart-wrenching things, that they are all redemptive and that we will lose nothing that God will not restore. 
so that as we approach life, you see, we can be humble and confident. So if you're willing to think about who's your enemy, as I asked you to do last week and a little bit earlier, humility means that Jesus is driving you to love your enemies. Will you love your enemies? Do you realize that Christ loved you who were an enemy? He didn't push you away. In humility, he loved his enemies. Will you love yours? Or will they be the reason why you exist? Or will you always be looking for another one? Because you've got to have an enemy to continue to live. But will you have the confidence to engage your enemies? This is for those of us who are shy and have a hard time reaching out sometimes and, and we just accept too many things sometimes. It's good to be humble. It's important to be humble. We've got to be humble, but we also have to be confident. We've got to love our enemies, but confidently, by grace, we need to engage and that's important. Do you see how all the, everything in our lives is supposed to drive us to what we believe and God's posture toward us? Do you believe in the resurrection? Like a literal historical resurrection, Jesus literally rose from the dead. But what does that mean? What it means is that in humility, Life is not about me. And life is so much bigger. And my vision of life is so much bigger than just me or my place or my country that I have a bigger vision of life. And that in humility, I'm not thinking about myself all the time and what I want. I'm thinking about something so much bigger and in confidence that goes with that humility, I am living a life proactively. I'm not sitting back reacting to everything that's happening. I want to be proactive in my life. I want to be positive in the way that I go about living in the world. It means that we think about what Jesus has done and what we see is that God's people cared for those outside of our body and inside our body. It means that God's people were planting churches. It means that, it means that they were caring for the needy. It means that they were teaching the truth to their children. It means that they cared and they were confidently, proactively living in the world, taking risks, gambling for God, counting on his glory, not afraid of failure or loss. They were willing to lose everything. The resurrection means that we can live lives that are proactive and confident in what God is doing. And you see all this is true about confidence and humility because it's all wrapped up in Jesus who embodied humility and confidence. He is the lamb 
who was slain and the lion at the same time. He left heaven and humbled himself and took on the form of a human being. The one that wrote the law of God became under the law of God and subject to it. And he obeyed all the way to the cross. And he suffered and he endured the wrath of God for people like you and me. Incredible humility. And he went into the tomb. But he had this towering confidence, right? No one takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and to take it up again. Towering confidence to say, Peter, people like me and you, Peter, you're going to fail, but I pray for you. And your faith won't. Confidence to build a kingdom that we read about in chapter 4 and 5 that's made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. He is building a kingdom that cannot fail. Confidence and humility together. And the more this image gets down into us, the more it will shape us. And the more, by grace, we will look like our Savior. We'll grow in humility. And we'll grow in confidence.